listening to the VC20 Podcast, a space for meaningful conversations and relevant teachings. It is so good to, to be with you and to see you. It's uh, been a joy getting to know the many new faces that have joined us since we resume, resumed gathering three weeks ago. Uh, as you can tell, we're all trying to work our way back after having been quarantined and in isolation for what feels like forever, but for it was, I think, about a year. But we're coming back better than ever because you're here, and I'm so glad that you're here. I met Kaylin tonight and my friend Isaac down here. So if I haven't met you, if you're new to our community, make sure you say, hey, I'll be the guy wearing the mask after service. It's a joke. We all have masks on. <laughs> Come on, Valentine's Day. Just give me a courtesy laugh or something. God is good. So we're going to continue a sermon series that... Uh, we've been in called A New Normal, and the premise of this series is we're asking ourselves, what would it look like for us to emerge out of a year like 2020, not just with uh, the mindset of getting back to normal, but embracing a new normal, um, embracing new spiritual rhythms, embracing new relationships, embracing a new measure of life and spiritual vitality in God. And tonight, I'm going to continue the sermon that I preached two weeks ago, entitled Coming Back Stronger. So this, this sermon is called Coming Back Stronger, Part 2. I bet you didn't see that coming. Uh, if you weren't able to join us a couple of weeks ago, I do encourage you to, to check out the podcast, the VC20 podcast, and, and just familiarize yourself with that content. I don't know how y'all felt, but I felt like that was a good word. And so uh, check out the VC20 podcast and be sure to listen to that sermon. But to orient us toward where I want to take us tonight, let me just quickly... Uh, refresh us and remind us where we were during that sermon two weeks ago. We, we took our cues from the Apostle Paul and considered how we can emerge from a year like 2020, not just having survived and gotten through it, but actually having grown and matured. And we, we did so by taking our cues from Romans chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us this, this curious call. He says that we are to rejoice in our sufferings. He doesn't say just grit your teeth and grind it out. He actually says to, to reframe it and rejoice in it because God doesn't let anything go to waste. And that's good news. Amen. Our, our senior pastor, pastor, well, our former senior pastor. Wow, that's weird. Our former, our founding pastor, Rich Nathan, says it like this. He says, pain isn't the worst thing in the world. Pain without a purpose is the worst thing. And the Christian worldview affords us purpose to our, our pain. It doesn't mean that God is the source of our pain, but it does mean God in his grace and his infinite power is able to redeem, is able to use our pain and suffering to bring about good and growth in our lives. This is in part what Paul means in Romans chapter 8 when he says all things work together. All things means what you think it might mean. It means good things and bad things. All things work together for our good. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul gives us this calculus, this sort of formula for what happens in the heart of a Christian when they find themselves in the midst of trial, hardship, and suffering. He says, uh, suffering produces in us perseverance, which we defined as the ability to withstand the storms of life. And it's also, it's not just the ability to endure, but it's also the reality that the roots in you grow deeper and get stronger with every storm you endure. And then he says, Persever perseverance leads to character. To say it another way, perseverance leads to Christ-likeness. As we persevere, we're 
made more like Jesus. How many of you can attest to this reality that suffering has a way of refining you? And what God is doing is he's working out the impurities and imperfections and building your character and making you more Christ-like. I use the analogy of a goldsmith. Remember I said a goldsmith heats up gold over fire to burn out the impurities. And the goldsmith knows that you're ready, that the gold is ready to be taken off the heat when he can see his reflection in it. That's what Christ is attempting to do with us. He's trying to get us to reflect him and his character and his likeness to those around us. And then Paul says that character produces hope. Not just any kind of hope, not the hope that the world affords, not just some, 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 some sort of wishful thinking like, God, this has got to get better eventually because there's nowhere to go but up. That, it's not that sort of hope. The Christian hope is rooted in the resurrection. The resurrection assures us that nothing that we lose in this life won't be redeemed. It, it, to say it another way, whatever we lose in this life is making room for new life, for better life, for life to the fullest, as Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10. And so today I want to pick up and I want to pull on a thread that I, I mentioned uh, last week when I said that suffering or, or what we often experience as pain and suffering is actually God's grace. What we often experience as pain and suffering is actually God's grace. What I mean is that we often develop unhealthy attachments, you and I. It's human nature. We often develop unhealthy attachments. To say it another way is we, we have our idols. We have those things that mean more to us than God. Uh, the human heart is an idol factory. We develop these attachments and uh, and, the, and when we lose these attachments, the result is pain and suffering and hardship. But what we don't realize is that should these attachments have stayed, they would have caused us infinitely more pain. These attachments could be to anything physical, like an iPhone or money. They could be relational, such as an attachment to a friend or a significant other. Or they could be an attachment to a status or a value, such as being uh, popular or comfortable. So suffering is often used by God to free us from these unhealthy attachments and to realign our values. Am I making sense to anybody tonight? One of the things that our culture values most is individualism, radical individualism. Individualism and independence is something that our culture esteems. Individualism is the idea that you get to be whoever it is that you want to be. And with, the, with enough hard work and future self-journaling, you're going to become that person right? It's this idea that, that the interests of the individual have almost entirely eclipsed the concern of the community. We no longer derive our meaning from God in a larger framework of community or tradition. Now you get to have your truth and I get to have my truth. We choose and we curate our relationships based on people who will only ever agree with us or affirm our worldview. And now the church, you and I, as the people of God, we're called to represent the alternative to the onlooking world. We're called to be salt, the salt of the earth and the light and a, and a city set on a hill. We're called to be the light shining in the darkness. But, but the kingdom of darkness has proven to be a, count, a great counterpuncher, so much so that the toxicity of individualism is even infiltrating the church. And it's become a part of what we understand discipleship to be. Our faith is intended to be for the sake of the world, but we have made it to be for the sake of ourselves. Notice this, y'all. Jesus didn't say that the two greatest commandments is to love God and love yourself. He said the two greatest commandments 
is to love God. And the second one is like it, is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, now obviously and certainly the prereq to be able to love God and love your neighbor is for you to have uh, emotional maturity, is for you to, um, to prioritize your own personal health and spiritual vitality. I'm not saying there is, there's something inherently wrong with you focusing on you for a little bit. But if we're not careful, we have a way of getting turned in on ourselves. And I think God wants to reorient us tonight. And, and I also think that that's one of the graces of 2020. What does is, what is all that, Shane, have to do with suffering? Suffering is often God's answer to our stubborn independence and individualism. Let me say it again in case you missed it. Suffering is often God's answer to our stubborn independence and individualism. One of the graces of a year like 2020 is that suffering and hardship is intended to remind us that we need each other. And, and the world knows nothing of this kind of uh, independence, or, or of this kind of dependence, rather, because the world would uh, condition us to believe that, that, God forbid, we would ever let anybody know that we have any need of anything. We're, we're trained and conditioned to wear the mask and hide the wounds and, and to keep it moving, right? But but in the kingdom, we're, we're called to, to lean on one another, to care for, to support, to cry. Uh, later on in the scripture that we're getting ready to read in Romans chapter 12, uh, Paul encouraged us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We need each other. I love the way uh, uh, a guy by the name of Ed Welch put, puts it in his book, Side by Side. He says, we're meant to walk side by side as an interdependent body of weak people. God is pleased to grow and change us through the help of people who have been recreated in Christ and empowered by the Spirit. This is how life in the church works. This is how life in the church works. We, we support, we depend, we lean on one another. In her book, Daring Greatly, the author Brene Brown uh, makes mention of uh, a study conducted by the social psychologist named James Pennebaker. Pennebaker is his name. And in this study, uh, Dr. Pennebaker tried to determine why some victims of trauma emerge stronger while others don't. And Dr. Pennebaker found that the number one factor that led to healing post-trauma was whether or not the, the, the victim of trauma had a family or a community or a support group to process their pain in. Did they have somebody to confide in? Did they have somebody to hold them while they wept? I'm not saying that we have to have answers to everyone's questions, but, but can you just be a benevolent presence in the, in the life of somebody when they're broken, when they're needy? The majority of those who had, some, who had a community to hold their pain were spared any long-term ne negative effects. In other words, Dr. Pennebreaker's study concluded that we need each other. But there's this growing trend among Christians that I personally and pastorally find deeply disturbing. And it's this idea of solo discipleship. Y'all, solo discipleship is an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp or, or civil war. It's, it's literally a contradiction in terms. Now, I'm no green thumb, but from what I understand, for a plant to grow, it needs to be in the right environment. We have several plant um, makers, growers, whatever you're called when you do the plant thing, in our community. And they have greenhouses, and they have really well-lit, shiny, sunny-D sort of spots for these plants to grow. 
Now, if you were to take those plants out of that greenhouse and put them in my house, they would cease from growing because a plant, in order to grow, needs to be in the right environment. And the same is true for a disciple. If you want to grow in your faith, you, you need to do so among a covenant of stubbornly loyal relationships who commit together to love one another, serve one another, and bear with one another. I want to say as clearly as I can from the jump, y'all, I am not pretending that this is easy. We are called to bear with one another. In his, in his, in his seminal work, Life Together, Diedrich Bonhoeffer reminds us that that while we're called uh, to, bear with, to bear one another's burdens, the real task is simply bearing one another. That means that we're quick to forgive and we aren't easily offended, that we make accommodations for people's failures, that we're willing to be inconvenienced and we model mercy and grace to one another. Let me just quickly read you some verses and here's what I want to do. Hopefully you brought your Bible tonight. If you did, go ahead and take that out. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, fire up the app or just get the Google machine out and type these verses in. We are going to have them on the screens, but that's just more for the sake of reference. I really want you, whether it's by virtue of your device or your Bible, to follow along with me. I'm going to read you a series of verses. And, uh, and what I want to do is I want to be slow and deliberate as we process through this. And, and if you have a real-life Bible, here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to, to underline or highlight anything that's challenging. I want you to circle or put an emoji by anything that you uh, desire in Christian community. I want you to, to make note of the things that you feel like you're good at and that you bring to community. And I want you to make note of the things that you feel like are a vacancy in you and that you know you should be better at. And so as I read these verses, I, I really want these verses to read you. So let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10. I'll give you a second to turn there. I'm not hearing many pages, so I guess we're going digital tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. And in fact, if you, if you don't have your Bible tonight, if you're new to this space and you're not really a Christian, that's, that's totally okay. You may just want to close your eyes and let these words wash over you. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another. And what you say, and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. How many of you can say with, with any measure of earnesty and honesty, Shane, I am, in, I, am in, I am perfectly united in mind and thought with my Christian brothers and sisters? Anybody want to lie tonight and say, yeah, Shane, that's me? <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. I absolutely love this. This is so rich. Be completely humble and gentle. If this were me and I were taking inventory of, of my vacancies in light of these verses, I'd, I mean, it doesn't take more than a sentence for Paul to call me out. Be completely humble. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And here's why. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Paul says this, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. How many of you, 
And I don't, I don't say this with any malice toward those in our community who might be experiencing a season of spiritual atrophy or apathy. But I'm curious, how many of you would identify friends in your life who you know aren't prioritizing their relationship with Jesus? Who you know their spiritual life is withering? How many of you, with those people in mind, have, he have heeded, have herded, have, have listened to Paul's call here in 1 Thessalonians to warn those who are idle? Warn those who are disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Not just be patient with the ones who agree with you. Not just be patient with the homies and the best friends. This necessarily means that you have made space in your life for people who need patience. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Paul says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, it is not lost on me that this very romantic and idealistic vision of what Christian community can be is so often at odds with your personal church experience. I know for me, the church of God has been the cause of life's greatest joys. And simultaneously, the church has been the cause of some of my life's greatest hardships. These verses are aspirational. They're intended to paint the picture of the possibility of Christian community. But this heavenly aspiration must, must be held in tension with our earthly reality. But that doesn't mean that we don't press on. That doesn't mean that we do what we can to embody what Paul talks about here. Here's the verse I really want to uh, drop anchor in, and, and we're going to do a bit of exegesis here. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're going to pick it up in verse 9. And just by way of warning, this chunk of Scripture was actually intended prior to COVID to be a, an entire six-week sermon series. Now, I'm not going to try to preach six weeks worth of content to you in the next 10 minutes. I'm going to do my best just to give you the highlights. But, but let me read it for you from the top. I'm actually going to read a bit more than what we're going to focus on just because I think context here is key. I'm going to read it for you, and then we're going to backtrack and, and walk the text together. Does that sound good? If y'all are still with me, give me a good amen. Give me a better amen. Amen. Paul says this starting in verse 9. Lust must love. Yes. English is hard, y'all. Y'all try to get up here and do it. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. He doesn't say be devoted to somebody so long as they are a good friend. So long as they are uh, fun to be around. So long as they agree with you and are there when you need them. He says be devoted to one another in love without qualification. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. This is a different sermon for a different day, but I don't know about y'all, but for the last year of my life, I can't say honestly that zeal and spiritual fervor has characterized my life with Jesus. 
But Paul says we shouldn't settle for that. That doesn't mean that there won't be high tide and low, low tide seasons with God. We ebb and we flow. But we, when we find ourselves ebbing, ebbing, we shouldn't settle. Paul says, never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. That's the chunk we're going to focus on. But let me continue reading. Just let this bless you. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but we be willing to associate with the people of low position. How many of us are willingly associating ourselves with the poor, with the homeless, with the marginalized, with the outcast? He says, be willing to associate with the lowly. You want to know why? Because if Jesus were here right now, you want to know where he'd be? It is no small thing that the God of heaven decided to take up residence inside of a human body. And that body was a poor immigrant refugee. He says, be willing to associate with the lowly. I forgot where I was. I'm preaching so good. What verse am I at? 17. Do not repay an evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. Now let's do some quick exegesis here, like I said. I'm not sure what it says in your Bible, but the heading in my Bible for this passage of Scripture says, Marks of a true Christian. This is how you know whether your faith is truly authentic and regenerative. This is how you know a true Christian. This is the same sentiment that Jesus expresses in John chapter 13. Right after he gets done washing the disciples, verse 34, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you have a Christian sticker on your MacBook or Nalgene, that's not what it says. Says, by this they will know, because you attend VC20 and you're so spiritual, you even show up early to serve. It's not what it says. It says, they, everyone will know that you are my, my disciples because you love one another. So, what does sincere love look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Paul answers that question here in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. He says, Hate what is evil. Some of your translations might say, Abhor what is evil. Uh, the word there uh, for hate in the Greek is actually only used one time in the entire New Testament, and it's right here in Romans chapter 12. It means to utterly despise what is evil. What Paul is saying here is that it's not enough to simply wish someone well. You must also hate and oppose the forces that wish to do that person harm. An easy example of this that's really relevant to our cultural moment is racism. If I were to take a poll, I don't know many of you who would say, yes, Shane, I am a racist. Insofar as being a racist is defined as proactively oppressing people because of the color of their skin. But listen to me. It is not enough simply to not be racist. True love demands that you are an anti-racist, that you are proactively opposed to the forces that bring about oppression and injustice and inequality. He says, hate what is evil. That means 
Actually, I'm not going to go there. Let's keep it moving. Got myself in enough trouble tonight. He goes on in verse 10 and says, be devoted in brotherly and sisterly love. I actually don't like the way that the NIV translate the, translates this verse. It says, be, be devoted in one another. Be, thank you, Lord. Be devoted to one another in love. That's a weak translation. In the Greek, it's actually the word, the word for love here is Philadelphia, also known as the city of brotherly love. Paul is talking about family love here. It's the kind of affection that only you have for your brothers and your sisters. And you know what I love about family love? Is you don't get to choose who's in your family. You don't get to curate your family based on their interests and, and, and the, the trajectory of their life and whether or not they're, they're as cool as you are, right? If your sister doesn't rock with Taylor Swift as much as you do, you can't exactly give her the boot, Family love forces you to extend love, to honor, to serve, to bless, to labor, labor for the good of those in your life simply because they are a brother or a sister in Christ. That's hard. That's challenging. Paul goes on in verse 10 to say, and it says, honor others above yourself. Honor means to have a high appraisal of somebody. It means to esteem them and to revere them as priceless. And that assessment is based on not what they can do for you, it's based on who they are as a brother or sister in Christ. Now listen, even though you show honor to somebody, it does not mean that they will not hurt you or wound you with their words or betray your trust or let you down. But honor says everyone is greater than their worst offense in the phrase of the prophet, our brother Brian Stevenson. Honor says everyone is greater than the sum of the worst things that they do. Honor is to praise in public and correct in private. Listen, you taking your offenses to Instagram with passive aggressive posts doesn't honor God and it does not honor your brother and sister. I'm not talking to anybody in here because I'm trusting y'all don't do that. But honor is to praise in public and to correct in private. Honor does not exempt somebody from correction. It just means we do it in a way that is biblical, in a way that honors God and honors the other person. Verse 13, Paul says, practice hospitality. Now, this is a vitally important part, a vitally important component of Christian community. So often, our understanding of what constitutes our community is so reduc reductionistic. Your community must be greater than the sum of your closest friendships. This is why the practice of radical hospitality is a major theme throughout the entire Bible, particularly in the life of Jesus. This is what got Jesus killed because he kept questionable company. Do you guys understand this? Luke 15 tells us that the religious elite of the day were getting fussy because the Bible says that Jesus was, was welcoming sinners and dined with them. Dining with them didn't mean that he, he just shared a casual meal at the Waffle House. Dining, table fellowship was the most intimate of things that you can do in ancient Near Eastern culture. Dining was literally meant that Jesus was sharing his life with the ones whom the world had counted out. Being hospitable means being welcoming. It means making room for everyone to have a seat at the table. Now, don't get it twisted. I believe in boundaries. I'm not saying that everybody has to be your best friend. And the sooner that you come to terms with that reality, the better off you will be. Not everybody is going to be your best friend. Not everybody who you want to be your best friend will become your best friend. But hospitality means that there are times and occasions in our life where everyone 
and I mean everyone, is welcome. And I would submit to you tonight that the best occasion for you to practice radical hospitality is in your small group. For those of you who have yet to, to take the next step in your faith journey and you're not in a small group, I encourage you tonight to, to consider joining a small group. You can join mine, sure, sure-footed. You could uh, check out, if you're a, a young lady in here tonight, you could check out Choose Joy, led by Maddie and uh, Liz. We profiled them on our Instagram, at uh, VC20. You can check out and get the information there. If you want information about any of our small groups, log on to, to vc20.com groups. Small groups should be the place where we are practicing radical hospitality. Now, let me drop this down and give you reference for the kind of friends that we need in our lives and the kind of friend that you yourself should seek to become. Here's where I'm going to ask you to flip. I actually don't have these verses on the screen, so I'm going to ask you to flip with me and give me grace and give me a moment to turn to each of these as well. This is a framework that I stole from John Tyson, a pastor at Church of the City in New York City. Uh, If you like this, great, because I pretty much steal everything from John Tyson. So what kind of friend do we need? What kind of friend should you seek to become? A great reference, a great place to explore the kind of friends that we need and the kind of friends that we should become in the scripture is in Paul's benedictions. He signs off almost every one of his letters giving shout outs to his friends. Friends we need are friends who will protect us. We hear, we hear about this uh, when Paul gives a shout out to Phoebe in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at whatever that is that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron. That word patron in the Greek means protector. You need friends who will protect you. We need friends who will risk for you. Priscilla and Aquila, just the next verse down in Romans chapter 16, verse 3. Paul says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. We need friends who will take risks for you, who will risk for your dream, who will stand up and protect you and speak well of you when others are tempted to slander you. Even putting themselves and their character and their reputation and their resources on the line for your good. We need friends who will refresh you. The household of Stephanen, I think is how you pronounce it. Stephanen. I'm not going to flip to these. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8. You need friends who, who you find yourself refreshed when you're in their company. Anybody have a friend that just radiates joy? That you can just be down and out and broke, busted, and disgusted, but in their company, they just have a way of believing the best and, and, and holding on to God and His promises, and, and they are unrelenting in their joy quotient. Do you, anybody got a friend like that? If you don't, you need to get one. You need to get a friend who refreshes you from their company. You need a friend who will speak well from you. Tychicus. I don't know where they get these names from, y'all, but Tychicus. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. It's Paul says, if you, Paul says, check my record and ask about me. If you need receipts for everything, for my character, ask my friend Tychicus. Oh, hot mic. Ask him. Ask him about me. He will speak well of me. You need friends who, who will speak well of you, who will believe the best about you, who in the company of, their, of others, they're not gossiping about you. They're speaking of you in the highest regard. You need friends who will fight for you. Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. Paul calls him or her, I'm not sure, a fellow soldier. 
You need friends who will fight. You need friends who will fight for your spiritual life and vitality. When you yourself don't feel like fighting, you need a friend who will stand side by side and lock arms and fight for you, who will intercede for you, who will pray for you. Last thing, we need friends who will pray for you. Epaphras in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. I'm just going to read this one because I love, I love the language of Scripture here. Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, and he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. You need friends who are wrestling for you in prayer so that you may have full assurance of God's love and his calling on your life. Now, what am I calling you tonight? I'm going to close with this. What am I calling you to? I'm calling you to consider how COVID has affected your relationships. In fact, you might want to take a moment and take inventory right now. How has COVID affected your relationships? Perhaps you're someone who's experienced acute loneliness and isolation. And I want you to know that this church can be a faith family for you. Psalm chapter 68 says that God places the lonely in families. If, you're, if you find yourself lonely here tonight, we don't want you to leave the same way you were when you got here. We want to be a family to you. Now, it's interesting how we go about doing that in an age of COVID because we can't exactly give you a bro hug or anything. But, but if that's who you might find somebody tonight, find myself or one of our leaders and just say, you know, that's a word for me. I've been struggling with loneliness and, and I don't want to live like this anymore. We would love to come alongside of you, believe in you, celebrate you, serve you, get you plugged into what God is doing here at VC20. You don't have to be alone anymore. Maybe you've completely withdrawn from Christian community. If that's you and, and you had the courage to come tonight, I commend you. But what started out as screen fatigue has, has morphed into spiritual slumber, and now you're completely lacking in any sort of prayer life or time with Jesus or time in his word or breaking bread with his people. I want to challenge you to lean in again. Surround yourself with people who will spur you on toward faith and good works. Following Jesus isn't a journey that you're meant to undertake alone. Arise, O sleeper. Rise up from the dead and the light of Christ will shine on you. More than anything, I want you to catch this vision of what God can do through a small group of people committed to seeking his face. Small groups of people committed to seeking the face of God. Our revival's kindling. Don't be shocked when revival breaks out as a result of you and a group of friends seeking God on behalf of your city, on behalf of your family, on behalf of your loved ones who don't know God, on behalf of your school. Don't be surprised when revival breaks out because of your small group. In fact, throughout history, small groups are the only thing that God has ever used to bring about revival and spiritual renewal. I want, to, I want you to pray about joining one of our VC20 small groups, and I want you to commit to it. I want you to make peace right now with the fact that when you step foot in that small group, it's probably going to be awkward. It will. It might feel weird, but stay faithful. Play your part and help that group become the kind of community that, that you yourself long to be a part of. How has COVID affected your relationships? I'm guessing in a room that, this size, there's a myriad of ways, some that I haven't even touched on tonight. I want you to lean in again. Don't give up on the family of God. Don't give up on the family of God. Let me pray for us as Paul and Leah make their way to the stage. God, we love you so much. Help us to lean in again, Father, for all the ways that we're leaning out, for all the times that we've been hurt by the church. God, help us to muster the grace for the imperfect people of God 
believing that you are the one perfecting us. You are refining us. God, help us to make room in our lives for people who are not like us. Help us to extend ourselves beyond the zone and boundaries of our comfort for the sake of the world, for the sake of serving others. Help us to be invitational and hospitable. Help us to have eyes for the lonely. Help us to have a heart for the isolated. God, knit this community together in such a way that we become a group, that we become a remnant, a small group committed to seeking your face, believing that when we do, you're going to bring about revival and awakening and spiritual renewal in our city. Give us the gift of faith to believe that tonight, I pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the BC20 podcast. Make sure to subscribe for more sermons and intentional conversations. You can also check us out online at bc20.com.